0: So again, hello and thank you for joining me tonight. When I was here last time, a couple of weeks ago, I just finished a one month personal retreat at home and I spoke about uh, reconnecting with the experience of samadhi and how I'd really reappreciated what a powerful and beautiful quality of mind it is. And also what an important support it is for the deepening of our insight practice. Now, not all of you were at that previous talk, so just to begin with a little bit about what samādhi is. As many of you know, it's uh, commonly translated into English as concentration. But these days, and as I mentioned last time, try to avoid that word Many teachers try to avoid the word concentration because it tends to have connotations of a narrow, focused attention. And when people think they're supposed to try and get concentrated, they assume that the way to do that is to sort of fix the mind on the breath. That usually is the breath. And then every time it moves away from the breath, to yank the attention back then usually with a hidden attitude of self-judgment, which tends to build tension, resistance, aversion in the mind, all of which are hindrances which get in the way of actually allowing that samadhi to develop. So a more accurate definition, a more accurate way of thinking about samadhi is as the mind that is gathered, collected, unified or absorbed. And you might get a sense from that description that unfortunately for most of us, that's not how our minds are. Most of us, our minds are scattered, distracted, fragmented all over the place. So with Samari, we're learning how to develop the qualities of calm, of tranquility, of steadiness non-reactivity, of ease and peace. All of which are very skillful states of mind, and all of which are experienced as profoundly pleasant. So samadhi tends to bring with it all of these different skillful, pleasant mental states. And as I said last time, when we are able to touch in to some degree of samadhi, it acts like a reset for our nervous system it gives us a tiny foretaste of Nibbana, Nibbana being the heart and mind that is free from all afflictive states. So when we can touch into this quality of unification, of steadiness of mind, it builds confidence in our practice. We get a direct taste that we're on the right track and that it is possible, at least temporarily, to let go of that agitating, incessant, self-referencing thoughts that are there in the background for most people for much of their lives. So instead of translating samadhi as concentration, I'll mostly leave it untranslated, and you can just think of it as profound steadiness of mind, of unification, gatheredness, absorption, whatever words make most sense to you in your own experience. And just to be clear, as same as last week, I'm not talking about the deepest levels of absorption that are known as the four jhana, but just a more accessible capacity to steady the mind, to settle it into more ease and calm. Because that non-distractability, that non-wavering, is what supports insight to arise. And that's really the true purpose of why we develop samadhi. It's not intended to be an end in itself, just abiding in deep peace for its own sake. It's intended to provide the best conditions for clear seeing, transformative insight to come into being. Now for most people, (laughs) We need the specialized conditions of being on retreat, at least at first, to get that initial taste of the power of samadhi. And this is because, unfortunately, most of us, our daily lives are so full and so busy, and our minds are so scattered and agitated by all the media that we consume, that for most of us, it takes longer than just a 20 or 30 minute daily sitting to really settle ourselves. It's an organic process that just takes time. And as I said last time, to me it's unfortunate that these days the length of retreats is getting shorter exactly when actually most of us need it to be longer because we are so agitated. So there's just an organic process that takes time for our nervous system to settle. And in the support of the retreat environment, where we have seclusion, there's more silence, we can slow down into stillness, all of that supports the deeper letting go into samadhi. Now having said that, it's also true that samadhi is a mental quality that we all already have. Even as you're listening to me now, there is some degree of steadiness. Bringing the attention back to what you're hearing a settling in and a receiving of these words. So samadhi is also a natural function of the mind, and it's one that we can train in and develop and cultivate. Now, as I mentioned briefly earlier, before the meditation, in the traditional texts, the proximate cause for samadhi to arise is said to be gladness. And one way that this gladness arises is through recognizing the mind that's free of the hindrances. And this might sound like a bit of a joke, but it's actually true. Every time we meditate, during that time, we're not acting in ways that are harmful. So let that in. Don't be afraid to acknowledge, as you're sitting, you're probably not drinking alcohol, you're probably not gossiping, you're probably not doing all kinds of other harmful things that you might slide into during the day. So each time we sit in meditation, that's strengthening the uh, ethical conduct, it's strengthening the capacity to still the mind and to release it from afflictive states. This gladness can also be strengthened by the Vihara practice of mudita, or appreciative joy, which again I was just touching into into the meditation earlier. So tonight I wanted to focus more specifically on mudita as a support, as a way of steadying the mind into samadhi. So, as I think most of you know, mudita is the third of the four brahmavihara practices. It comes after metta or kindness and compassion. And it's traditionally taught as developing appreciation or gratitude for the success and good fortune of other people rather than we ourselves. So, I'll start by just saying the way mudita is usually presented is the heart's capacity to feel appreciation, feel grateful for other people's happiness, good fortune, good qualities, success. And for some people on first hearing this, it might sound challenging to really appreciate other people's successes. It might even sound a bit naive or self-indulgent to be trying to develop appreciative joy when Particularly, perhaps these days, so many people around the world are really suffering. There are so many crises and catastrophes that we can point to. And so sometimes people have a resistance to letting in what's going well, because it can seem like it's not acknowledging the challenges that many people are facing. But in some ways it's precisely because of all of those challenges that we need to develop the flexibility of mind that Muddita can provide us with. We need to be able to tune into the whole spectrum of our experience and not just fixate on what's difficult. Because as you all know from your own experience probably, when we just tune into the news cycle multiple hours a day, it's pretty demoralizing. So mudita can play a powerful role in helping us avoid burnout. So being able to tune in to what's going well, to really let it in, to acknowledge it, to appreciate it, to allow ourselves to feel the joy of what's going well, for many of us is quite a training. But there's a Swedish proverb that says, Shared joy is a doubled joy, and shared sorrow is a halved sorrow. So you might get a sense from that that if we don't allow ourselves to feel any joy, then obviously we don't have any to share with others either. So in some ways, mudita is a form of generosity. When we allow ourselves to connect with what's going well, to connect with our own delight, our own happiness, then there's more that we can offer to others too. And, you know, not necessarily by going on and on about how happy we are, but cultivating our inner capacity for contentment and ease that makes us pleasant to be around So rather than stifling any positive emotions that might come up out of some misplaced sense of solidarity for the suffering of the world, instead we might just consciously use them as a resource to strengthen our own well-being so that then we're more available to support others too wherever possible. So you might be getting a sense then that mudita can be a very powerful practice to balance out the mind's inherent negativity bias, which, as you know, is that capacity to overemphasize what's painful, difficult, challenging, and to ignore or even negate what's going well, what's pleasant, nourishing, restorative. And as I've been emphasizing, mudita also supports our capacity to relax, to let go and to settle in to the ease and peace of samadhi. And all of that comes from our capacity to tune into and notice what's pleasant. And again, because of the inherent negativity bias, for many people this isn't so easy. We tend to notice, to default to noticing what's painful, unwelcome, unwanted. And sometimes when I suggest this as a practice to people to allow themselves to take in what's pleasant, they can have quite a lot of resistance. And certainly this was true for me early on in my own practice. I found that this invitation to bring awareness to what's pleasant it brought up a lot of unseen assumptions that I had about what good dharma practice was, what it was supposed to be. And what I discovered was that I actually had an unconscious belief that meditation was supposed to be difficult, it was supposed to be challenging, it was even supposed to be painful. And if it wasn't those things, if at times it was actually pleasant or enjoyable, then clearly I wasn't doing it right. Right. I wasn't practicing hard enough, I wasn't going deep enough, I wasn't seeing clearly enough. So maybe some of you recognize some of those beliefs in yourself. Very common, even common for the Buddha himself, before he became a Buddha. So as I think most of you know, he went through a long phase of practicing extreme austerities. Pretty hardcore ascetic practices early on in his practice with the intention of subduing desire. And he did these to the utmost. He did this kind of self-torture before he finally realized it wasn't getting him anywhere other than close to death. So when he got to that point, according to the legend, he decided to reevaluate how he'd been practicing. And what he realized at that point was his fear of mental pleasure had been getting in the way. And once he allowed himself to open to the profound mental pleasure of samadhi, that's when he started to really progress. And it's said that not long after he realized the role of mental pleasure, he attained nibbana for awakening. So I appreciate that story as an important counterbalance to what we hear so much of in the teachings about dukkha, stress, distress, suffering. That's often what we hear. We also often hear about not getting attached to sense pleasures. And so some of us again can develop an unconscious fear. Oh, I mustn't enjoy that because I'll get attached to it. And again, in my own case... What I didn't realize was that I actually developed fear of pleasant experience. I tried to avoid it. And if we do that for too long, the practice becomes dry, it becomes a chore, it becomes rigid, unsustainable. So these are all ways of not really understanding the subtlety and the nuances of the teachings. It's not about all about suffering and all about avoiding pleasure. There are some key distinctions that we need to make here. And one is the difference between sense-based pleasure and mental pleasure. The other is the difference between simply experiencing pleasure as pleasure and getting attached to that pleasure, clinging to it, trying to hold on to it. So first, the distinction, difference between sense-based pleasure and mental pleasure So sense-based pleasure is our ordinary, everyday cup of coffee, cup of tea, glass of wine, shopping, napping, watching TV, going to movies, playing golf, I don't know, any of the things that we were chatting about just before, our ordinary, everyday sense pleasures. Nothing wrong with them, but for people who are not meditators, If people know of no other way to be happy, then they tend to focus all of their attention and energy on just getting the next sense-based pleasure in order to be happy. The downside of doing that is that it makes us dependent on conditions out there being a certain way in order for us to be happy. And because everything is unreliable, unstable, impermanent, the cup of coffee goes cold and then it starts to taste nasty. The TV program ends and then we have to find the next series to binge watch. Things we bought at the online shopping they look good for a while but then we get bored with them and we want to find the next juicy thing to purchase. Do you notice in your own life? You know, even the other day I was noticing, oh, get a take away coffee from my favorite cafe, it's pleasant for a few minutes and then it's gone. And then I pick up my phone to call a friend or scroll through the news or anything to just avoid registering that dissatisfaction of the empty cup. And the same is true of food and shopping and movies and sex and holidays, yes they're pleasant, But they don't really lead anywhere, they just keep us caught in that cycle of okay, next thing, next thing, next thing. By contrast, the pleasantness of skillful mental qualities is more reliable, it's longer lasting, and it helps to develop inner happiness and contentment independent of external conditions. So with training, it's possible to experience some degree of acceptance and ease of contentment, even when our outer circumstances aren't ideal. So when the Buddha advocated releasing our dependence on sense pleasures, he wasn't telling us, give up experiencing anything pleasant at all. Instead, he was inviting us to use pleasure skillfully to develop and strengthen beneficial qualities of heart and mind so we don't need to just disconnect from from something that's pleasant because oh it's pleasant and I might get attached and for me this was a turning point in my own practice because as I said I had a tendency for a while there to just oh I can't go there that's pleasant but just to get an example of how we might do that if you think about watching a sunset say you're on a beach somewhere in the evening and the sun is going down and this beautiful array of colours starts to fill the sky and it's just visually stunning we start taking in that beauty. If we were to stay with a more conventional response, what might we do? Grab our phones, start taking pictures, uploading them, posting them on social media, trying to show people what a fantastic time we had and what a stunning beach we're on. We've missed the opportunity because we've just used the pleasant sense experience to stimulate greed and to identify with the experience, create a sense of self out of it. On the other hand, if we register that pleasant visual experience and then just notice, bring the awareness inwards and get a sense of what's that doing to my heart and my mind? And we might recognize there's a sense of gladness, of appreciation, of gratitude. The quality of mudita can start to develop and that relaxes the body. It calms the mind. It opens the heart. And we can start to notice other skillful qualities coming in. Perhaps a more heightened mindfulness and presence and openness and warmth. Lightness tranquility. All of these qualities can grow and deepen and settle into samadhi, the mind becoming very absorbed and unified in that experience. So that's just one example of how we can actually use skillful, we can use pleasant experiences to develop skillful mental qualities. So I thought actually this evening, instead of just taking my word for it, that we might experiment with this together to see how using pleasant experiences, using appreciation and gratitude can help to develop other skillful qualities of heart and mind. And I thought to do this in in some small group practice. So I think I'll leave it at that for now and just say thank you for your attention. And then we can have plenty of time to explore this together. So I'd like to do this in a a meditative way, moving into breakout rooms, probably in groups of three, and to use that form of separate speaker and separate listener. So you each will have three or four minutes just to name out loud to your partners, any experience that is registered as pleasant in the moment can be very simple, immediate things. Perhaps it's the softness of the clothing against your skin. And then remembering the friend who gave you that shirt and feeling a sense of gratitude. Gratitude. It might be a feeling of having a pleasantly full belly after having eaten a good meal. Or maybe you notice how comfortable your chair is. So we don't want to force this sense of appreciation. Maybe you had the experience of as kids being told you had to eat all your peas because there were children in the world who were starving. You know, that sense of force is, just brings up a hindrance. So just gently tuning in, finding even the smallest thing you can to appreciate. Go around the circle, and then when each of you have shared, you can just spend another few minutes exploring what was that like, to hear what people enjoy, appreciate, feel gratitude for, and specifically to notice what effect does it have on the heart and the mind. So I will post that uh, contemplation in the chat box now. And then you should have it to refer to when you're in the group. So do you all see that? And when you first move into the group, you'll have a minute just to introduce yourselves to each other. I know you will know each other, but... I'm going to invite the first speaker to be whoever's name. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.